Welcome to Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge. On the 6th of May, we had a great discussion about the spread of fake news and how this has affected trust in journalism and the relationship between society and the media. If you missed it, you can watch it on our website, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Today, we are delighted to welcome four new guests to explore the impact of the pandemic on the UK's faith landscape. Our guests will share their personal experiences and views on the growth of virtual practice on observance within faith communities, and we will discuss the opportunities and challenges the lockdown has posed for faith communities in this country. We will also be running some audience polls throughout to get your own thoughts on the topic. Now, today I'm delighted to be joined by Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, the Director of Strategy and Partnerships at Liberal Judaism, Julie Siddiqui, co-founder of The Big Iftar, Onkar Singh, founding member of City Seeks Network and founder of Society and Me, and the Reverend Lucy Winkett, rector of St. James's Church Piccadilly, a writer and broadcaster. Uh, welcome to you all. To those watching this morning, do please get involved and submit any questions you'd like to put to our guests as we go. Last week, we had a flurry of questions uh, towards the end and we weren't able to cover them all during the webinar. So don't leave it too late and we will do our best to answer as many as we can. You can submit your questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our Facebook live stream. If you prefer to remain anonymous, please direct message us on Facebook or Twitter during the webinar. Now I'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves first and say a bit about the work they do. And maybe I can start with you, Onkar. Can you also please tell us a bit more about your work in the Sea community and how the pandemic has affected religious practices and observance within it? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've been involved uh, with uh, the City Seeks Network. Um, um, I'm, I'm no longer kind of um, uh, on, on the board there, but uh, it's something that I've been involved in the last quite a few years, uh, for the last quite a few years. Um, and uh, yeah, and we, we've kind of run a sort of variety of different events, uh, mainly bringing people together from a professional network uh, to kind of uh, support each other in, in, in their careers um, and also just kind of having obviously faith and background, uh, faith play a role within uh, just normal everyday life um, problems and uh, supporting each other in, that, in those ways. Um, uh, what was the question again that you, that you wanted me to... How would you say has the faith community, your faith community, been affected by the pandemic, especially religious practice and observance within it? Yeah, so obviously this uh, this this pandemic, um, as as we're probably aware, it's it's uh, it's been particularly hard. Uh, what this is what we're finding out on on the BAME community. Um, uh, I think I've got a, a stat here of uh, that uh, around sixteen point two percent. Uh, of the deaths in the UK have actually come from a BAME background, uh, whereas only 14% of the uh, of the population is is BAME in the UK. Uh, so obviously that that's uh, given that the Sikh community is largely um, of a South Indian origin. That's you know that's that's been quite uh, um, uh, an impact, um, and and I think families and individuals have felt that uh, uh, you know at an individual level, but also also just sort of in the community level to in terms of keeping the elderly members of the household um, safe. Um, it's also quite common obviously within Sikh households uh, as with many 
South Indian households to have sort of multi-generational households. Uh, so that's added a sort of uh, an added complexity to um, sort of the day-to-day -day living of, of, of a lot of uh, people in the community. Um, we've also had obviously uh, you know all, all the doctors in the UK that have died from, from coronavirus have come from the Bain community um, sadly um, and one of them has was actually the UK's first A&E consultant uh, Manjit Singh uh, who passed away sadly of coronavirus um, you know in, in, in the pursuit like everyone is of uh, trying to save lives uh, so I think so. I think the, the so the impacts have been wide ranging. Um, uh, obviously, we don't know why uh, these certain sort of impacts more on the BAME community uh, are, are happening. And obviously, we're in early days of of the research and, and finding out. It could be a mixture of um, how the community lives. Uh, sort of this what I was mentioning around intergenerational um, uh, uh, households. Uh, but it could also just be cultural um, aspects. So I think one of the, you know, one of the things is that obviously, um, again, Sikh community, as with a lot of the other South Asian communities, are, are quite community focused, as with many of the faith communities that we have. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's obviously difficult when you can't meet people, um, you know, face to face, and everyone's had to adjust to that in a way. Um, I think from a sort of prayer and worship perspective, um, obviously, with the with the uh, gurdwaras closing, um, you know that's that's been particularly difficult. I think on the elderly, um, and many people actually also rely on going to the gurdwaras for their for, for a meal. Um, uh, you know, um, but I think uh, you know seeing some of the initiatives done uh, by the Sikh community, like uh, keeping some of those kitchens running, which are which are generally um, you know very very hygienic and, and keeping to all the government guidelines, um, being able to support not just the Sikh community, but others that maybe need meals. Um, obviously, there's lots of facilities to prepare food um, in, in the, in the um, Sikh Gurdwaras. So, um, so it's, been, it's been quite uh, amazing to see uh, volunteers coming together to actually prepare meals and distribute them uh, at this sort of, you know, difficult time like this. Um, with with personal practice and, and worship, um, um, you know, there's been obviously there's been things like live streams of. So now you can you can you can kind of do this strange thing where you go online and you can kind of get a live stream from from uh, from India or, or or there's a few other gurdwaras around the world that have these live streams and and generally obviously it's empty so it looks really strange. Uh, but you can at least, you know, connect a little bit um, with what's going on and, and, and connect with those sort of, um, sort of sacred places um, that, um, that are important to people. Um, but on, on a personal practice level, I think, you know, one of the, one of the important things and I think um, sort of one of the takeaways, I guess, uh, and maybe a, a small silver lining to this, uh, to this situation uh, is, is that, um, you know, uh, within the Sikh faith, you have this uh, a concept that uh, you know you don't you don't need to have a place of worship to to, to pray and to and to practice uh, and, and 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 you know that's that's kind of um, similar to many many faiths, of course. Um, but I think that um, you know we've had a lot more time at home and 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 life has slowed down in many ways. 
um, uh, in many different aspects. And it's a kind of provided this space from, from my experience, and probably not true for everyone, but uh, it's this space for self, more self-reflection um, and, and sort of going internal. And I think for me, that's one of the key you know, teachings um, is about looking, looking at how we can uh, sort of go deeper into ourselves and discover what we need to discover there. Um, you know, our connection with our faith, with God, with whatever we are, um, whatever we believe in. Um, and, and I think having that opportunity there is, is something that uh, I've personally seen as a bit of a blessing. And I, and I know that many other Sikhs will, you know, will, will, will see that that way as well. Um, and yeah, and just to kind of um, take that as sort of a little bit of a silver lining in terms of how we can deepen our practice and our, our connection um, uh, to God uh, through, through times of silence and uh, solitude really interesting and, and I wonder whether this resonates with your experience Julie because you are currently practicing Ramadan but quite quite differently from how you would ordinarily have done that can you maybe introduce yourself briefly and, and tell us a bit about the experience of doing doing Ramadan in this difficult time I think you have to unmute yourself sorry there you uh, are uh, thank you nice to see you again and thank you so much for um, having me here um, so yeah, I mean, I'm uh, involved in a number of different uh, initiatives over the years. You mentioned the big iftar earlier, and of course, iftar is, is a meal that we have when we break our fast. And the idea of the big iftar at the start in sort of 2012, when we first had these conversations, was about getting Muslims to open up Ramadan more, share it and the blessings of it with those around us, whether inviting people into the mosque or into our homes. Um, and then the most amazing thing happened, which was that people of other faiths started hosting iftars and I know Lucy has done it for a number of years now in, in uh, St James's and lots of other um, synagogues and cathedrals and all of that that's been amazing of course we haven't been able to do any of that this year and I remember before um, uh, before Ramadan started and as we were leading up to it and already in a kind of lockdown situation lots of people messaged me what are we going to do how are we going to do things online what, what will it be like and I kind of said let's just wait and see and what has been amazing is people being very sort of um, innovative, I guess, and, and, and arranging things online and still having conversations uh, with each other. Um, so that's been great. Different, of course, but, but you know, something at least uh, rather than nothing. I think for most people, the Ramadan experience has actually been different and amazing in many ways this year because we've been forced to, as Onka mentioned, go into ourselves. And actually Ramadan is supposed to be about that anyway. It's supposed to be very much a sort of private, personal reconnection with God, thinking about your own life, what you're going to do afterwards, etc., asking for forgiveness, all of that. There is a communal element, of course, and that's now missing. And so how do people fill that void? But I think it's been fascinating um, to see how people have adapted. You know, generally speaking, I would say everyone has been resilient and has, has adapted really well and made it work not just Muslims, I mean, people in general, I think, you know, it's been one of the great outcomes of this, see what people can do when they need to. Um, but I think the sort of um, home-based Ramadan, you know, I, for me, it's been a blessing, actually, uh, the slower pace. I've been able to connect with the Quran, with other teachings, listen to things, reflect more than I would normally having to fit that in with school runs and everything else that I normally have to do. So I think in that sense, it's been, you know, and, and many would say that I think the same thing. On the backdrop of all of that, of course, 
Onka has rightly mentioned that many families, many people in the communities have lost loved ones. And that's been very, very difficult. And of course, funerals are, you know, unlike we've ever seen before. And for Muslims, there's a, there's a sense of burying a person very quickly. Normally, lots of people gather at a house where someone's died. or That stuff is, has been very tough. And I think so people sort of swing from this, particularly at the moment in Ramadan, this kind of heightened sense of spirituality, while in the background, this sense that actually this is very dangerous and we need to be very careful. Um, and so I think, you know, in the main, the mosques have and still are remaining closed. It's difficult. It's a very difficult ask in Ramadan in particular. The mosques are full, uh, literally. Um, and so to not have that space has been hard for people. Um, so I think it's a sort of mixed blessings, actually, in, in, in terms of Ramadan. And I think it will be interesting to see what this brings out of people, how we shift our thinking, how creative we are. I'll be interested to see how that happens, you know, going forward. You mentioned interfaith work. You've, you've been an interfaith practitioner for many years. What does interfaith life look like at the moment? Has it, has it stopped? Are there initiatives that continue virtually? Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, it's been amazing. I was thinking I need to write down all of the things that I've either attended or spoken at or been part of or zoomed in on or whatever. Uh, so I think those connections where people already know each other, where there's some sort of format already, have just carried on and sort of, you know, developed in, in some ways in a better way, in a different way. I think one of the things that I feel is, has been great and I've really loved it is the sort of opening up of these spaces to people who otherwise may not necessarily dip their toe in the interfaith water, as it were. Um, so I've seen people or, you know, share, been able to share a link, which is very different to someone actually coming to an event or turning up to, you know, to, to hear someone speak. But to be able to sort of sit at home and watch from the sidelines has been great, I think. And people, I, I think, have, have, uh, have experienced some of the conversations that I kind of take for granted, actually, because I do it all the time. I have so many amazing people that I can kind of work with and mix with uh, from all faith backgrounds. And I feel that's a huge blessing for me. And to be able to see other people who don't normally engage with that benefit from it and you know I, I get messages from people say wow she's amazing see what he said and I'm thinking yeah I mean it's kind of what I hear all the time uh, so I've been you know real good reality check for me there that it's it's great to open this up more and move out into different spaces where maybe people are skeptical maybe people are you know not normally benefiting from that and, and giving them that opportunity I've loved that aspect of it. And Charlie, maybe you can tell us a bit about the work you do and then um, maybe share some of the experiences you've had with virtual ceremonies and gatherings in the Jewish community. Such a large question. Um, so I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky from uh, Liberal Judaism um, and uh, we are a particular part of the Jewish community working with progressive communities across the country. So we have about 40 uh, communities um, spread 
right across um, the UK and beyond actually. Um, and it's been fascinating to watch from our smallest communities to our largest um, try and create online spaces that have uh, meaning for their, for their communities. And that level of creativity and resilience and adaptability has been, has been inspiring. Um, I think we managed the very first weekend of lockdown um, to nearly all of our communities were immediately holding both their services, their Shabbat services online, um, as well as um, their religion schools. So education for children from our youth movement to uh, individual communities, religion schools happening online and continues. I mean, we, we are learning. I think that's, that for me has been really striking that actually often the religious communities are quite slow to change. Or, or maybe I'll say just the Jewish community, no. I think religious communities can often find change very, very difficult. And um, uh, some might say it's democratic, you know, de democracy takes a long time. But actually what, what this situation has forced us to do is to change and adapt really quickly. And also to let go of things when something works to keep with it. But also when something doesn't work, um, you know, I, I don't think my communities are alone in, in sometimes flogging dead horses. If this once worked, we must keep with it and hope that someone shows up. Actually, what we've learned is we can let things go. We can try something different. Let's do it in a different way. Let's, and that level of creativity, I think, has been really wonderful. Sadly, one of the areas where we have had to be really creative and hold people in a totally different way has been over funerals. Um, we're very lucky in one way in the progressive world that we um, felt able very quickly to um, offer Zoom funerals um, and um, memorial services online, which not all aspects of the Jewish community were able to do because of their own views on tradition and Jewish law. But for us, um, very, very early on, because we'd had a very high rate as well within the Jewish community of deaths, and as a small part of the Jewish community, we're also we're very reliant on a small number of people in terms of Jewish funerals, that actually we had to take a very difficult decision in deciding um, that there would be no mourners at our central cemeteries. And that meant that we had to also adapt on um, those life cycle uh, moments and our rabbis have been really incredible in their ability to suddenly bring those moments to Zoom. And I think as awful as it has been, it's also been quite amazing in the way that people who wouldn't usually like uh, the Muslim community, we bury very, very quickly. Um, and um, that often means that people have been not able to be at the funeral anyway, even outside COVID times. And this has meant that suddenly we can say there's a different way to be there. There's a different way to mark these moments. Um, and those opportunities um, have been really important. And I think, um, thinking, as Julie mentioned, where do we go after this? How do we hold the things that have worked and where we have been able to be creative and adapt is a really important question for us to hold on to. Um, is, yes, of course, it has been so difficult and Judaism is, it, you, we always talk about you have to do Judaism with other people. And although we, um, we, we talk about time being our cathedral rather than our uh, actually the building being our cathedral 
still places are important being together in the same space spending festivals life cycle together with other people is at the heart of, of Judaism um, and so we do obviously desperate to get back to a time when we can be together in the same space but at the same time we need to remember how this has opened doors for people that as, as again as Julie mentioned we have seen attendance higher than ever at our services um, and it is much safer to step through a door online than it is often to walk through the door, physical door of the building and um, I hope we don't lose that as we as we move forward of thinking how do we open our doors as one of my members calls it how do we make our boundaries more porous um, as we as we move forward. And apart from services, Charlie, of course, an important part of religious practice is caring for the vulnerable members of society. Now, how has this work been affected in your community, in, in your experience? Well, I think probably I'm not alone in having, over the last few years, banged my head against a wall in terms of volunteering. The nature of volunteering is not the same as many of us grew up with within our um, communities that although there will always be people within communities who are amazing at volunteering that actually that nature has changed we all have so many demands on our time that it can be very very difficult to get your rotors up in the same way as um, they used to be and what's been amazing at the moment is that despite the fact that people have even more demands children at home continuing to work at home that people have found space to um to, to volunteer and to care for the community at a humongous rate and um, thinking not only of their own community but also of um, the communities that they live in um, that are wider than their own faith community and um, I think one of the biggest challenges so that in some ways has been the easy part that actually to feed rotors whatsapp groups um, to reach out to people who are on their own um, both the vulnerable also the people who just this is the first time actually having to be on their own and deal with their own space um i think has been the easy part in some ways because we've been overwhelmed with the number of people who want to get involved the difficult challenge is those people who are not online um and i think um challenging ourselves to think because they're also the people that it's going to be longer before that they can access face-to-face uh, -face services is um that that's the real challenge um and that continues to be a challenge how do we care for those people that can't do this that that find this really hard don't have the equipment don't uh, feel very insecure with it don't have access to wi-fi that continues um to be a challenge how do how do we do that level of care um will continue to be a challenge. Yep, that's really interesting. Before we ask Lucy's view on it um, from the perspective of the Church of England, I just want to remind the audience that we'd love to We'd love to ask you to submit questions to our guests and you can do this by using the Q&A function on our Zoom live stream or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our live stream on Facebook. And to those watching via Zoom, we are now going to do a quick poll to hear some of your thoughts. And the poll will pop up on your screen now. And the question we're asking is, have you engaged more with faith or belief organizations during the pandemic than previously? It's a simple yes or no. Um, unfortunately, our panelists, you can't vote. But um, asking people now, got about 20 seconds or so to, to respond. And then I think it will be interesting to see whether there has been more engagement with faith or belief organizations during the pandemic uh, by people currently, currently watching us. So we're waiting another 10 or 20 seconds and then we will 
a sense of responses from the audience. And then I'd like to ask uh, Lucy also to tell us a bit more about uh, what your experience has been with providing pastoral support um, online, virtual services, and so on. I think we've got to wait another few seconds before we get a get a result. Here we are. Um, Sixty-four percent have said yes. They have engaged more with faith or belief organisations during the pandemic than previously. That's almost two thirds. Um, of course, we might have a might have a selection bias among the people viewing this. But um, yeah, maybe Lucy, does this surprise you? And maybe tell us a bit more about the way in which the church is providing pastoral support at the moment. Yes, thank you very much for having me um, as part of this discussion. Um, yeah, I mean, I, re I really resonate with a lot of what uh, other speakers have said. I think um, church buildings have been closed, but certainly the building that um, where I'm um, serving at the moment, we're, we're in the middle of London. Um, it's a building that's open all the time and you know people come and sleep in the pews who are homeless and it's just open all day every day it's completely shut at the moment uh, obviously so what's happened with our congregation is that they simply moved online uh, quite rapidly actually and so in terms of pastoral support new groups were set up new um, kind of support cluster groups were set up where people were where people were living and of course, our, our liturgy all moved online as well. Um, and similar to other speakers, that's raised and opened up some amazing kind of avenues of creativity. And um, I mean, even just some fantastic stories from our congregation. If we're wanting to um, hear our congregation read scripture as part of the service, that now involves really quite a serious investment of time for them learning how to uh, take a video on their phone if they've never done that before, learning how to WhatsApp that, they've never heard of WhatsApp before perhaps, um, and that's coming to a person who then collates all of that. We've been wanting to make sure our services are accessible as possible, so we've done them live on YouTube. Um, we've used, we have used Zoom for other smaller services, but we just wanted it to be as open as possible, really for the reasons that others have said, that it's safer to, to kind of just shimmy over the threshold of a church building online than it is to you know to get on the tube or whatever it is and come in to you know make a journey so we found that our walls have been more porous and in fact the people who've been accessing the services on a Sunday are more than we could fit into the building physically so that's that's really you know it's it's a, it's a very creative thing it's been a very creative thing for us um I suppose I'm also bound to say, though, that I think all religions have a really strong element of lament in them. And I think that that note of lament has perhaps been missing sometimes from our public conversation. And I think it's something that um, those of us who practice our faith can contribute to this situation that, you know, as someone was writing recently, we are all working from home or we're homeschooling or we're, our lives have changed and there's been a huge amount of creativity in that. But the reason we're doing that is not just because we have chosen to work at home. We're surviving a global pandemic or, or not surviving a global pandemic, as the case may be. And that, that element of, you know, the stalk, we're being stalked by sickness and death, however much we keep that anxiety at bay or try to, it's there 
And I think that's a really important um, contribution that um, those of us who are involved in faith communities can just give room for and space for and and listen to that voice of of lament and loss um, alongside all of the other you know quite extraordinary things I really related to uh, what uh, Rabbi Charlie said about you know um, even progressive or communities that want to call themselves progressive like like the part of the Church of England that I might be in we're incredibly uh, resistant <laughs> resistant to change ordinarily uh, quite often and I think this has made us change rapidly and profoundly and so you know there's a bit of bewilderment about that but I, I know that we'll keep quite a lot of this I'm sure we'll keep quite a lot of this um, after it's after it's over um, whatever over looks like and what everybody's calling the new normal and I think that the the courage that it will take for um, people in faith communities to ask those really profound questions about what were we doing that we just don't need any more to do. Um, that that takes a bit of courage to kind of face that question and just stop it. I think that would be that would be amazing and amazingly creative. At the same time, I think there's a there's a whole other strand of this which to me feels as if, and I'm just speaking as a as a pastor and a priest now. It's made me. It's challenged me to fall back on what I really believe is important. And to, so it, it's kind of honed or, or I suppose, um, focused um, the question. So what are we for? Who are we for? Who is the God that we are worshiping or um, talking to others about? And those quite profound questions mean that you um, often find yourself asking questions about the organisational and the institutional aspects of what we're of what we're doing, and I think that also has meant for Christians that um, home has become more important as a place of prayer, which is which is a which is wonderful gift. Um, it has meant that people have been, you know, if they've been isolated, they they've often felt quite, as far as I've been hearing, quite lonely or um, uh, unwillingly alone in that kind of practice of prayer. And there are some people who simply can't get to that prayer that they can get to when they're with other people. So there's some people for whom online liturgy, however much, we, however much we're creative and however much we try to do it well, there are some people for whom it just doesn't work. And so I think it, at one level it said to us, we can do these things in new ways. In other ways, it's reminded us of the importance of the ancient practices that we're part of, which are that bodies matter and gatherings matter and touch matters. Um, so those, those two things have kind of, I suppose, um, they sound contradictory, but I suspect that they're just a, a paradox, but they've taken us in two slightly different directions. And the last point I'd make is really one of access and inclusion that we were just talking about, that um, it's not just older people, but there are, you know, significant groups in our population who simply don't have reliable Wi-Fi or they don't have any privacy. And so one group of people that we particularly are involved with are people who are in the asylum system who are um, or people who are vulnerably housed it's really hard to take part in an event like this or indeed an online service if you have no privacy in your living arrangements 
um, or indeed you don't have any Wi-Fi or, or bad Wi-Fi. And I think that has brought up really significant questions of access and inclusion, um, where it looks like we've become a community without borders and you know open, yes, but it's also stopped a whole lot of other people or, or made it more difficult for a whole load of other people. Um, so one of the very first things we did, I don't know how one of our congregation absolutely brilliantly, I think even after week one or something, just researched how to dial in by landline to the service after it had been broadcast. This is now, I think this is, this is a great thing and lots of people have been doing it, but there was just somebody in our congregation who I just thought that's brilliant. She was onto it immediately. So I think even from our second Sunday or so, it was possible to hear on a landline our service an hour after it had been broadcast and I felt really um, I felt so grateful for that particular person and that particular idea um, because it's easy to get carried away with the kind of you know whizziness of it all um, but actually there's something very there's something very profound about making as much effort as you possibly can to get everybody in the room <laughs> or you know everybody who can be to be in the room there have been some people in our congregation with disabilities, particularly physical disabilities, who have said, you know, welcome to our world. This, this is the way that we have been accessing religion and you've made it very difficult for us in the past. And now, finally, we feel that we can be part of it. So again, there's a whole other group of people who have found the inclusion and access to the practice of their religion easier now but it's actually ruthlessly exposed the, the failings of, I'm speaking for the church, of course, only, but it's ruthlessly exposed some of the areas that we were simply not properly addressing, people who simply cannot leave their homes. How hard have we tried in the past, actually, to help those people to pray? Really good and profound challenges to us. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a, a really multifaceted response. And I wonder whether we could take this a bit further with um, one of the questions we've just got through from Bob Churchill from Humanists International, who, has, who says that the COVID-19 response in the UK has not been characterized by any public religion. It's been about people appreciating people, looking to science, thinking of others, stepping up to volunteer. It's been secular, inclusive, humanist even. That's all good, isn't it? I don't know, Lucy, if you want to maybe say something first and then I might ask Onka to reflect on that as well. It's definitely all good. Um, I think, I think that's, but I don't think that precludes religious practice or, I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it is a, uh, a statement that religious practice has not been very, very significant in a large number of people's responses to this. Um, so I think that, you know, person to person contact, giving your time freely, um, a kind of what in, in religious jargon we would call a grace-filled response. So not so much a transactional response, expecting a lot back, but a grace-filled response where you would simply give of your time or give of yourself just for the for the sheer good of doing it um, is a is a thoroughly respectable you know uh, religious teaching. So I I would see us in partnership with um, a humanist in a, with a humanist response. Um, so I, I, I don't I don't feel particularly competitive about this. I just think, you know, we've all finding our ways to to respond to what has been, as I said, um, 
a very significant challenge to our understanding of what life is and what death is and how death can be marked and how life should be lived. Um, all of us involved in religious practice, you know, vast numbers of people around the world have found new ways to practice their religion in this context and it's helped them hugely. Uncle, what are your thoughts? Do you feel competitive about the humanist versus the religious perspective on this? I think the, the, the question is around, you know, what, what does it mean to be human? And, um, you know, it, it is human nature to be, to be loving and kind. And really what faith is doing is just reminding us of, of our human nature. So I just, I just see it as being totally on the same page as um as what our humanist friend has said uh this is definitely uh, uh, uh a situation where we we've we've had to turn to each other and we've had to turn to each other and be exposed to you know what it means to be human with each other uh, and especially when we can't actually physically uh, meet or be or close uh, together um it's really uh it's really brought, brought about um, you know, uh, a, a sort of a, a deeper digging deeper, um, and 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 a a um, sort of a, a digging deeper of of our values and really of looking at what's important uh, in in not just ourselves but in the people that are around us, uh, in our immediate households, uh, and also in the wider community and how we can help and volunteer. Um, uh, and and I think that those things, you know, volunteering and um, helping are you can do that without a particular faith. Um, uh, and and if you have a faith, then then let it be let it be inspired by your faith. And um, you know, let's all come. To, let's all keep coming together. Uh, one one you know example is where um, uh, we've we, we had a, a, a seat. Uh, there's a seek helpline that people can call uh, but we had a, a lady um, which uh, just struggling with out you know alcoholism and uh, this was the service because other services are stretched at the moment so this service was available so she called and, and got value from uh, speaking to a faith-based organization not that she was particularly she wasn't even from that faith um, but uh, you know the, the value is there because we're all human so it's it's absolutely the case that we we need to look out for each other um, and be inspired to help each other in whatever ways um, inspire us. If that is if that is through um, applying our scientific minds to something and we can help each other, great. If we can help each other through uh, developing our love and kindness for each other through our faith, fantastic. Um, you know, that's I think that's what's really important. And, uh, and I wonder whether I could ask Julian and Charlie to reflect on this as well, because I think it is nonetheless fair that what Bob pointed out is that in public discourse and media coverage, the voices of faith communities have maybe not been as prominent as those of scientists and politicians in this. I mean, is there more scope for faith leaders to contribute to discussions on the right course of action, on prioritization of public health versus economic activity and democratic freedoms? Or this is a crisis that is allowing faith communities to do a bit of social work but they're not really involved in the big questions at the moment. I mean, Julie, is that something you would, you'd like to comment on in the first place? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. I think Bob, um, you know, highlights the fact that all over the country, people have just stepped up. People who may never have done 
voluntary work before even you know I know that locally where I live and in looking across the country at the mutual aid groups and the local efforts that have happened has been quite phenomenal actually and something that I think needs to be taken into account beyond faith beyond politics it's just people being amazing uh, that's been very humbling I think um, in some ways I think the most important work is at that local level so I think you know there is definitely something that faith communities can input into the national kind of discourse but actually I think where I've been reflecting a lot is the localized effort going forward and what that looks like is probably the most important work because this is going to affect people for a very long time many people are going to lose their jobs people are going to be really struggling economically I mean uh, Lucy rightly pointed out about the sort of inequality in terms of disabled uh, people etc and we know that this hasn't been an equal playing field even as far as how people are responding or what they're able to do there are many people who already were struggling in their lives and what this has done has just made it even harder for them it's not new for some people some people who are lonely and isolated and felt you know very disconnected from everybody this has just heightened it for them what is our role as people of faith or of no faith working together that's for me the key so i think you know yes there's some public uh, discourse i think we absolutely need to do the work around the numbers around care homes for example how on earth that's been allowed to happen some of the the shocking kind of statistics that are coming out of care homes i think is a is a is a challenge that we all don't let people off lightly from that one because there's work and it's interesting even in my family you know when i mentioned it yesterday i felt quite upset hearing some of the things that have happened in care homes um, and how that sector has been really let down i say compared to other countries and even my own children who you know sometimes too clever for my liking sort of saying to me yeah but you can't keep looking back you know this is what the government did and now we have to look forward but I just think there's certain questions that we have to ask. And if we as people of faith, you know, representing the rest of the people around us can bring those questions up, I think that's one of the roles that we can play. Ask the questions, as Onko mentioned at the start, about the numbers. Why are so many from certain backgrounds dying or suffering? What what is that about? If 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 it is it about socioeconomic issues, is it what, what is that? You know, we can't ignore that. That's a big, big um, issue. And then just really us thinking about what roles can we all play together? I'm, I'm concerned about hatred and division emerging because whenever people are unemployed and whenever people are struggling financially or, or looking for people to blame or totally fed up with their own life, they're going to look for scapegoats. And we've already seen in the last couple of years, the scapegoats can easily become Muslims or asylum seekers or the other, a lot of othering. And how do we make sure, so us as leaders in whatever form that takes, what role is ours going to be in calling that out, in addressing it when it starts, making sure that people have a voice, not ignoring that voice because it's an important one. How do we channel it properly? These are the things that it takes bravery to do that. Uh, and I think, but that's, I think, going to be really important as well. We can do that as faith groups together, working, of course, with others locally and then, I guess, nationally too. But I think that's going to be something we can't take our eye off too much because people will be struggling going forward. 
Actually, Julie, we just got a question from Tatiana on this, um, who is zooming in from Warsaw and who says, I would like to ask whether their communities may have been affected by COVID-specific intolerance and discrimination and how they have responded to it. Is that something that the Muslim community in Britain has been affected by? Well, I think that Muslims and Jews have been blamed for the whole thing, probably in equal measure. So that's one thing I would say. The conspiracy theories are rife in terms of from the sort of far right perspective in a quite a dangerous way. They've tapped into something that was already there anyway and tried to blame Muslims and Jews for the whole thing. Um, so I think there's that there. I think there's certainly been issues, you know, from towards Chinese people at the start, but throughout as well. So again, you know, this kind of prejudice and, you know, trying to other it and looking for other people to blame for things that is going to happen and is happening. And so I think we just need to be careful. You know, it's, it's important that we bring out the positive stories more and more because they speak for themselves. You know, the first five or six doctors who died from this, uh, in, in this crisis were all Muslim, all from other countries. You know, they could have been any faith or whatever, but the fact is they were from a Muslim background. They came here specifically and were working on the front line, literally. And subsequently, lots of people from different immigrant backgrounds have died. You know, this should be something that we talk about and highlight them as heroes, um, while also acknowledging and, and, and highlighting the amazing work that faith communities and others are doing to feed people. You know, there are faith communities where, locally where I live who are literally feeding people on a daily basis. Mm. Hundreds of people feeding them because they don't have food otherwise and they need a hot meal. That kind of work is, is, is uh, inspiring. People need to hear that more because it kind of shuts people up. It's very difficult to argue against that stuff when you kind of think, make people think, well, what are you doing? Are you feeding people? <laughs> are you helping anybody? Or are you just complaining? And so that's what I mean about the othering. I'm worried about that because that is almost certainly going to happen. Anybody who works in the sector, um, I was listening to Nick from Hope Not Hate recently talking about this. The, the, the stats are there. Whenever there's an economic downturn, you do get racist behavior. You do get people trying to look for others to blame for whatever. We have to be careful of that and, and be aware of it and call it out and work together to, you know, to deal with that when it comes, because I think it will come. Charlie, does it resonate with your experience across Jewish communities in the UK as well, it forms of COVID-specific intolerance, discrimination and so on? Sure. I mean, Julie highlighted it, um, that it's been an issue within the Jewish community. Um, and um, as the Jewish community, we know um, uh, well what it means to be othered and that when there is a, a, a crisis of, of being uh, the scapegoat, so to speak, and we're also conscious of how that's happened um, to our brothers and sisters within the uh, Muslim community and other faith uh, communities. And Julie equally right that um, it's exactly at those moments that we, we need to do a different type of model of, of um, how that means to unite rather than to, to other and to call it out. I want to come a little bit back to the question about, about competition, um, really, because I think the two things um, tie 
together that actually it's a really interesting uh, dichotomy to see it as as competition rather than actually the the huge opportunity that both for whether it's people of faith or of none in in creating a different type of competition that actually what covid has done is mean that if i want to go to a, a to a service of a different uh, religion or to um a humanist uh, um, occasion i can do nobody is is stopping me really from walking through through that door and so competition is completely different it doesn't have that same sort of parochial nature that in the past it once did and I think this comes back to this sense of othering which is we can either see it as competition and us being as rivals as each other to each other and it being if you do this I can't do this or if you do this I have to do it better and rather see it as actually we're, go we're going to change we're going to change the um, the landscape and we've seen the idea of one voice and people speaking with one voice and how wrong that has, or the wrong path that that has taken us down. And that instead, perhaps this is exactly the moment where we say, we're not operating on that in, in, in that playing field anymore. Actually, we want to work as a team. We don't want to see that what's good for me is necessary, is therefore bad for you. But actually that, that competition, that seeing what other people are doing and learning from each other and not having one voice being the aim that we're looking for, but actually a multitude of voices, a multitude of different ways of seeing things and doing things um, has to be for me is, is, is changing that dynamic of competition. And also I think begins to, Give us that prophetic voice. That is the role for me of, 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 of being a of being a progressive Jew, but also the role of faith is the prophetic voice to speak out and to call these things, to call these things out and to say othering won't happen because we're, we're going to do things differently. And I'd like to bring in a question um, from an attendee on Zoom, which might connect is about the ways in which you think this growth of virtual practices then encourage more young people in particular to engage with, with faith? Because that would change the dynamics that you just described. Is that something you have observed, Charlie? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there is, there is no question that there are some specific issues and specific things that are, um, that are affecting young people at the moment. And we can't just ignore them. But certainly the level of participation um, is from our young people in their own forum. So not always in the same way as, um, as everybody else is, is huge and in get, wanting to engage with their tradition and their community and get involved and volunteer and um, is, is inspiring. But they, they also bring their own challenges to us about the things that we need to be doing and to be speaking about um, and, and um, they're also big on the lack of, of, of not needing homogeneity within our own community, let alone outside our own community. And that actually there's a real strength in, in that comes from, I think that our young people are pushing us towards to not saying we have to do things in exactly the same way in order to be counted in. Um, it's really important voice in that. I wonder whether you could say something about your experience, Lucy, as well, um, bringing young people into it because of the, the different kind of media that are used these days to connect with faith communities and with faith practices. And if I, if I listen to um, so-called young people, I suppose I'm th saying millenn millennials and younger, there are, two, there are two kind of aspects that keep coming out. One is 
a search for authenticity, authentic experience. And another one is a tolerance of fluidity that, you know, the word that they would use. And I think that's really great for us as, um, as faith leaders to, in a sense that um, if, if a person has grown up um, in an online world, then they are kind of, they're, you know, digital natives. I, because of my age, I'm a digital immigrant. I will never, I can work, of course I can work Zoom. I'm in various WhatsApp groups and all that, but I will never quite, never quite will be my, my, um, the, the place that I have um, understood from when I was born. So I, I w- we, have, we have to listen and learn from people who, um, who are able to spot inauthenticity online much more quickly than somebody like me, because it's, it's, it, they've just got a lot more experience and a lot more understanding of it. So I think a search for authenticity and a deep tolerance of a kind of fluid understanding of who human beings are and how we are together um, will really help um, those of us who are trying to build community and build relationships between faiths. Um, I I completely agree with what um, Charlie was saying about, you know, about being non-competitive or attempting to be non-competitive about this because you know those those kind of human qualities that religions will talk about like love and hope um, are not zero-sum games. So if you know I don't have all the love so that you don't have the love you know, we, we're, tr- we're, 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 uh, th- those things that ex- grow exponentially when we share them together. So, you know, event events like this, um, demonstrating publicly that people of different faiths are not that interested in being, uh, competitive with each other or trying to, trying to, that doesn't mean to say we're not saying we're different. I mean, I think that's a really, those are really important distinctions to make. Um, and it actually goes beyond tolerance. I think I, I'm, I, I get a bit frustrated sometimes when we stick at tolerance. Sometimes I think we, we need to go through tolerance to something more intentional, which, which you could call attentiveness. So if I'm at- attentive to a person who practices a different faith, then that teaches me not just a tolerance of difference, but an appreciation, a deep appreciation of the love of it to the extent that I don't need to have a fearful response anymore to protecting my own identity or my own um, practices against someone else's practices. Um, it doesn't mean to say that I won't stop. I'm not saying I would stop being a Christian. It's just being a Christian in a, in a really different way and a very imaginative way that a search for authenticity and a tolerance of fluidity will really help us in. So I think, you know, the greater engagement by younger people, um, not necessarily in the traditional uh, way, but in new ways will be, will be amazing if we can, uh, if we can have that conversation imaginatively. That's great. And I think it's giving the situation a very positive, positive spin as well. And that connects very nicely with the last question I'd like to ask all of you and ask for relatively short responses, because unfortunately, we're already coming to the end of this webinar. But we've got a question from Bex Lewis, who said, are any of the panelists getting a sense of what they might want to hold on to once this is all passed? Or is it too early to say? So this could be a personal question, but maybe also one for your communities. And if you could just go around the room and, and get a sense of what it is that you think you would like to hold on to that has transpired in this situation. And maybe we can start with uh, Julie. I think you have to unmute yourself again. Sorry, I keep forgetting. Hi, Bex. Nice to see you. And uh, 
Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it certainly comes back to this idea of what are we all going to take from this um, on a personal level, as well as for me, a communal level. I think I've loved the slowing down, the, the, the learning things in different ways, even in a personal way, I've connected with uh, t teaching and learning about my faith in ways that I've never done before in deeper ways. So that's been amazing. And I hope that I can hold on to that and make, continue to make that um, effort going forward when life gets back to some sort of different to what it is now. And I think honestly, from a community level, not just Muslims here, but community as, as a whole, it has to come back to, and I really hope that we can hold on to this good old fashioned street by street community organizing where people have connected with each other in ways that we haven't seen in this country for a long time. And I just hope that we don't lose that and go back to forgetting about the people that are around us and really challenge ourselves personally. Have I done enough for my neighbor? You know, in Islamic teaching, there's a massive emphasis on neighbor. Yes, love thy neighbor. What does that mean? Do my neighbors feel safe from me? How can I reach out to them? You know, who are they? You know, the immediate stuff. If all of us can do some more of that, and it's really been challenging, challenged me personally to think, gosh, I can't believe that I didn't know that guy. And he's been living on his own for a long time. And it's been, you know, humbling in that sense to, I'm, I'm fairly well connected, but clearly not well enough. So I'd like to think that as neighbors, as people in street by street, in the, in the way that they've been helping each other, that won't just be put on the, on the back shelf and for us to business as usual and not know anybody. We can really keep connected, I hope. That's my hope. Charlie, what do you think you will hold on to once this is all over, both on a personal and on a communal level? Um, well, on a very personal level, I'm a single mother with three children who are home uh, schooling at the moment. And um, I really want to hold on a, to a different way of working that um, means actually I um, can do more online and means that I don't need to um, <laughs> be at the office until very late at night actually there's a whole way of rebalancing home work life that I really want to hold on to and um, I think all of us uh, in this house have have benefited to from even in the most uh, <laughs> tricky of moments like locking them downstairs while I <laughs> not literally I promise um, while I do meetings like this um, and I think on a on a on a macro level and a larger level it's coming back to that thing which we've come up uh, we've talked about several times on this call which is in judaism we may be called keva kavana which is the intention and the and the um change so if the intention's about um what what is the core what's the thing that we that that keeps us grounded and connected what are our core values but at the same time how do we let go of um other things and continue that ability to change and adapt and respond and that actually that doesn't have to change our core values i think they're the the personal and the the more public that i'm going to hold on to or try to lucy what is there for you to hold on to once this is all over uh, just, I suppose, personally, uh, similar, really, um, the, the ability to do things like this and that this, and that these conversations work and that they're, they're, um, they're personal and that I can learn and connect with people online in a way that I, I really honestly hadn't before. Um, 
So there's, I think probably for me, it is something to do with work-life balance. I think as a society, I would agree with everything that's just been said. Um, I would add that, uh, as I mentioned, I live in central London and the air is amazing. It's clean and I can walk down uh, Piccadilly and to Leicester Square and it's really beautiful and I can hear the birds singing. So I, I dread the return of the trucks and the, um, and the loud engines. And I think for that then, that means for me, um, our way out of this is to invest and to be, and to have a green pathway out of this. I think we've learned a greater appreciation of nature, particularly those of us who live in urban areas. So I hope we can, we can do that on a policy level. And Anka, you will have the last words today on this. What are you holding on to? What are you looking forward to holding on to? Yeah, cheers. Um, uh, I agree with what everyone said really around like definitely more remote working uh, on a more personal level. It's something that um, I've kind of uh, been, I've always encouraged uh, in, 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 in people that I work with to work remotely. And it's really, it's really great to see that it's becoming a bit more established and um, I hope to hold on to that and uh, uh, and and hope that other uh, sort of um, employers do, do the same. Um, definitely, what Julie was saying around neighbours, uh, sort of day to day, uh, sort of bit uh, community, uh, local community spirit, and community building, uh, just with neighbours and um, with people that live nearby. I think that's that's really really important and that's come up as uh you know particularly in um in in where i live um you know i've moved uh, we, i moved here uh in london a, a couple of years ago so i've not had the opportunity to meet everyone um so it's been really a nice privilege to have have that opportunity um the solitude silence and uh, meditation uh, space that this has given uh, for me, I hope uh, to sort of continue that and um, uh, kind of hold that space as, as, as like a sacred space. Uh, and yeah, and again, just what Lucy was saying around environmental consciousness for me personally, you know, um, uh, planting um, uh, our first vegetables <laughs> this year um, and um, learning how to make compost um yeah just being in nature more um in a in a not in such a quick way driving you know through with a car just like jumping on the cycle and going going through uh the forest and enjoying it and that that sort of environmental consciousness i think um for me on a personal level but also on a society level i think that's going to be hugely hugely beneficial now we know almost what's possible right so uh so we can uh so there's no getting out of it <laughs> so yeah that's great it's great to have so many positive reflections i think um opening up opportunities that might come out of this experience that is is tr traumatic and troubling for many but there are still spaces of hope i think as you all have discovered and and talked about just now and I think that's a great way to end this webinar after, after one hour. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can find out more about the work we do at Cumberland Lodge on our website at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And we do hope that you will join us for our next webinar on Wednesday, the 27th of May at 11 a.m., when we will be discussing how government charities and non-governmental organizations, including faith groups, can best support those affected by death. 
many of whom face restrictions regarding the rituals that usually help people to deal with bereavement and something we touched on today we will discuss in more depth next week. We now broadcast our webinars on a weekly basis and you can sign up to get alerts about forthcoming webinars on the Keep in Touch page on our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. I'd like to thank our guests once more, um, Onka, Julie, Charlie and Lucy. Thank you very much for joining us today and good luck with your work. And uh, to our audience, thank you all for watching. Stay safe and goodbye. <laughs>